All right, well, last week we uh, were discussing, of course, the Trinity, and we were walking through some Old Testament passages on the Trinity. Uh, we got into the New Testament a little bit, but these foundational verses of Genesis 1.26 and Deuteronomy 6.4 are very, very, very key. I hope you highlighted them in your notes or you marked them as uh, foundational, okay, because they are foundational. They're both from the law. They're both from the Torah. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image. One image, but there's an us and our going on, all right? So you got... You got this interesting singularity and plurality in the same verse. And then you have the same thing in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay. Very clear, we're monotheists. And yet we still have this plurality going. God is referred to as Elohim. Yet his name is Yahweh. All right, And it's just very interesting. But this is the Old Testament. This isn't, of course, all the evidence we have pointing to the Trinity. But this is a lot of key text here. Uh, one we didn't turn to last week is Job 33.3, when talking, or 33.4, when talking about the Holy Spirit. In uh, Job 33.4, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God made me. The Spirit of the Lord God made me. And that's interesting. I wanted to point that out as we were coming back into this study today. Because what did I emphasize so much the last time I taught? There's a great chasm and a great divide between the capital C... Good, good. A big divide between... Yeah, yeah, that's good. Creator and, and creatures in all creation. There's a great divide. Well, when it says here that the Spirit of God made me, that's a verse about creating, isn't it? The Holy Spirit creates. The Holy Spirit makes. And who creates but God alone? And so that's just all of those things you've, you've been learning about God and His attributes. When those things are applied to the Son, when those things are applied to the Holy Spirit... Well, that's a signal that the Son and the Spirit are God, just as the Father is God. I'm curious if any of you looked at any of these passages last week or had any questions or thoughts on these Old Testament passages that we brought up before we get into some newer content. One of my favorites is uh, Psalm 45, and maybe we could just turn there and look at that as we start this week's lesson. Psalm 45, verses... Maybe not just 6 and 7. Maybe we'll start at 1 and read through 7. I think this will actually be my Christmas sermon text this year, is Psalm 45. A great text in the Old Testament about the Son of God. Would someone like to read that for us? Psalm, 145, or Psalm 45, verses 1 through 7. Yeah, we've got it. Yeah. My heart overflows with a good thing. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is a pen and ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne of God is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Okay. 
So as we start reading through the opening of this psalm, just so many amazing things. Look at verse 2. Grace is poured upon your lips. So there's a subject of the psalm that he's speaking of. That's you, as you see it through this psalm. You, the psalmist says, you have grace poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, so many times we could rightfully assume that in a text like this, where it says God has done something to a person, that's the creator doing something to a creature. But that's not what's going on here. You have God blessing this one. And verse 3, this one has a sword on his thigh. Does that sound familiar? If you know your New Testament, especially Revelation, there's a sword, there's a name written on the thigh. And this subject is given the title, Mighty One. Gird your sword on your thigh, O Mighty One. Is there any creature that could bear the title Mighty One? Well, absolutely not. That's a, that's a God title. But we see God has done something to this person. He's blessed you. And yet he is the Mighty One. The Mighty One has blessed the Mighty One is what's going on here. Isn't this fascinating? And then you get down to verse 6 and it's like, whoa, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So now the subject is being given the title God. The Mighty One is here straightforward being called God. And He has a throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now the subject is being called a king. He has a kingdom. Okay, now verse 7. You've loved, wicked, you've loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Well, my goodness, what is going on here? So you've got the subject being blessed by God and being anointed by God, and the subject is being called God. Trinity stuff. You see that? Trinity stuff. Now, these are amazing passages, and if we just had these, we would be stunned like we are today, but perhaps a little more confused, because if you remember this amazing illustration from last week, here's the puzzle. This is what the Old Testament gives us. The puzzle pieces are in their places, but we don't have all of them. That's not the fullness of the revelation of God. So if we just had the Old Testament, we wouldn't have the fullness of the revelation of God. Now we'd have this, and we could make some stuff out. Like, you see there are two subjects here. This is not a Trinity illustration. We'll talk about this next week, okay? But you've got, there, there are two, two going on, okay? These are in the right place. That means that nose doesn't go with those eyes. So there must be two, and that's what we see here. There's two. But then we get into the New Testament, then you see it all filled out. Father, Son, and Spirit. No. Okay. No, no, no. That's not what the illustration is. But you see the picture filled out now. Okay. That's what the New Testament does. It comes alongside and it complements what we have in the old. Notice it doesn't move the pieces around. It doesn't bring in uh, a new picture. But it leaves those pieces in their places and it fills out the picture that has been started in the Old Testament. That's hermeneutics. Bible interpretation. And we'll talk more about that as the class goes on. But remember this illustration, because we're going to come back to this when we talk about that. Well, we started looking at some New Testament passages last week. The Father's deity, as Dean said multiple times, you know, no one's out there arguing that the Father isn't God. Okay, We have those verses if someone wants to talk about that. But you do find a lot of people arguing that the Son isn't God. And that's a little bit sneaky, especially among Latter-day Saints, right? Because they'll say, we believe Jesus is God. And you'll say, yeah, but was he created? What do they say? Yeah, of course. He's our elder brother. He's the literal offspring, literal offspring of Heavenly Father. 
And remember that big divide. You're either creator or a creature. And if you are creator, you are God. So that's the rub. Now let's go to Colossians 1, uh, one that we didn't look at last week, to highlight where Jesus is creator. Colossians chapter 1, an amazing statement on the deity of Jesus Christ. And would someone read for us verses 15 to 20, please. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. Go ahead, Lizzie. Yes. I said a lot in, in street evangelism. Mm-hmm. And, That's okay. Uh, okay. I, I still have a question about another passage that I would use a lot. Well, jot it down, and we'll come back to it at the end of the class, okay? But uh, are you going to read the Colossians 1 for us, if you can find it? <laughs> New, New Testament. I'm just kidding. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. When you're under pressure, that's when it's really hard to find the passage, huh? Lizzie, you want Dean to read it? Okay. (laughs) He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All right. So um, one of the first things we can recognize in this passage is in verse 15. And if you've ever had a a run-in with a Jehovah's Witness, you'll know that they like to turn to this very passage, to this very verse, Colossians 1.15. Why do you think a Jehovah's Witness would want to talk about Colossians 1.15? They changed the passage. They, and, and this one, I don't think they've actually changed this passage. Now, they've misinterpreted it, but what do we have in the passage that jumps out? Lizzie spent some time with Jehovah's Witnesses. They say that it's like a, the fingerprint. It's like, this is your thumb, and then you go like this, and then that's the print. So yeah. They take that from Hebrews 1. That's Hebrews 1.3 where they teach that specifically. But, what, but who's the thumb in that illustration, and who's the print? Right. And so they believe that the real God, the one true real God, is the original, and Jesus is a copy, like a Xerox machine kind of situation going on. And you see that in verse 15 where it says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you don't know what that word firstborn means or why Paul used that word, you might be standing in your doorway with a Jehovah's Witness and say, yeah, it does say that, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Firstborn of all creation. Does that mean he was the first created being? Is that what Paul is teaching? Well, the answer there is no. Um, I mean, all you got to do is read on where it says that verse 16, for by him all things were created. <laughs> That's the very next verse. All right. So that, you know, you have to think, okay, what's Paul communicating? Well, you can jot this down. We, weren't, we won't turn there, but Psalm 89 is a great place for you to cross-reference. Psalm 89 is where uh, God is speaking of David, 
And God, of course, came into David's life and he made a covenant with David, didn't he? He made a very special covenant with David. And what was one of the key elements of this covenant? One of the key elements was that he'd have a kingdom. David was given a kingdom through his line. That David was going to never lack a man to sit on the throne, a descendant of David. And so in Psalm 89, it says of David that he has been made firstborn. Do you remember, was David the firstborn of his family? No, he was the littlest guy. Remember when Samuel went to Jesse's house and it's like, okay, which one? It's almost like a movie scene where they go from face to face and then the camera goes down and there's the little run, <laughs> uh, David. And now he was made firstborn. Does that mean that somehow Psalm 89 is saying, well, David was actually the firstborn in his family? Well, no, that's not what it's saying at all. But what it is saying is that this title of firstborn with all the rights and privileges that went along with it has now been put on David. And Jesus Christ is the one who is, if you notice in the New American Standard at least, that says firstborn of all creation. Yours might say over all creation. He has all rights, all privileges, all honor, all power over all of creation. That's what it's saying. He has that rank over all of creation. He is not a part of creation. Remember we looked last week at John 1.1. You should have notes in your notebook on John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things that came into being, verse 3, all things that came into being came into being through Jesus. Okay, so we're not saying Jesus was created. The New Testament never says Jesus was created. But He has all rank and privilege and authority over all of creation. And verse 6 says, By Him all things were created, Colossians 1.16, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. That's a pretty comprehensive statement. And then verse 17 goes on to say that in Him all things hold together. So once again, these are attributes of the Creator. These are creation attributes. He brought all things into existence. You can't think of one thing that Jesus didn't bring into existence. That the Son of God didn't create. He is creator. He's not on the creature side of the chasm. He's on the creator side of the chasm. And he's the one who holds all things together as creator. And so you can see how just that one passage shows us a lot about who Jesus is and how perhaps he fits into those Old Testament passages like we were just looking at in Psalm 45. Uh, if we examine Colossians 1 and 2 a little bit more, you see in, what is it, verse... Uh, 19, all the fullness dwells in Jesus. If you go to chapter 2 and look at chapter 2, verse 9, you have the same language again. For in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity. <laughs> That's, a, again, a pretty comprehensive statement, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Jesus isn't 50% God. He's not 90% God. He's not 99% God. He's all the fullness of God. All the, de all the fullness of deity dwells in Him in bodily form. Okay? Well, let's also look at 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. That's where we left off in your notes last week. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. So the very start of that letter, close to Revelation in the back of your Bible, just a few pages back from Revelation, you'll find 2 Peter. And we'll look at chapter 1, verse 1. This is the same sort of verbiage that we get in the Titus 2 passage. 2 Peter 1, verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, 
a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our, here it is, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is our God? According to this verse? Jesus Christ. He's our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have the same thing going on in Titus 2.13. Paul wrote Titus, uh, that's a letter to Titus. So you have Paul saying this, Peter saying this, both ascribing the title of God directly to Jesus. Okay? And then you, go, of course, have passages where Jesus himself is showing his deity. Uh, before Abraham was, I am, John 8.58. Dean talked about last week in John 17.5, Jesus says that before the world was, he was dwelling in glory with the Father. So before creation, he was existing in glory with the Father. Mark chapter 2, Jesus forgives sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is God, okay? So 2 Peter 1.1 is, is important because it shows how the apostles understood Jesus, especially someone like Peter, who spent all that time with Jesus. Here he is writing a letter later on saying that Jesus is God, says it in plain language, okay? So that's the Son's deity, uh, overview, a very fast overview on the deity of the Son. And of course, I have the Hebrews 1 passage up there too, which is... Essential, but uh, we're going to not look at that in this uh, class. Lizzie, you had a question about Jesus? Yes. Okay. I can find the passage, so I'm not sure you do. Okay. It's, uh, I don't know, I think it's in, it's in Isaiah. And, and then it talks about um, when, they're, when Jesus is born, and it's like, oh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yes. 9-6. Isaiah 9-6. Yeah. He is called Mighty God in Isaiah 9-6. Very good. Um, and so, I've used that when we were doing street evangelism, but I was told... Here, here, here. That one. Oh, yes. That one. And then it tells me that people tell me, like, oh, you shouldn't use that because it's... Because like, I used it with Mormons being like, hey, like, the son is born, and then they call him Wonderful Counselor, and then God, like, why would they do that if he isn't God? And things like that. But then I was told, like, no, like, that's different. Like, not the Mormons, but other people. Like, <coughs> like, it's two different people, so we can't really say that. Persons, not people. Yeah. Which is important verbiage note to make. Yeah, no, you, you can't. That's about Jesus. Uh, for unto us a child is born, is how verse 6 begins. The father wasn't born to us. Right? Amen. We don't celebrate at Christmas. The Father became flesh. That's not what Christmas is about. But the Word became flesh. It's talking about Jesus. Yeah, you're fine to use that. Actually, you're good to use that. Okay? Good. All right. Any uh, questions on the Son's deity? Father's deity, Son's deity? Good. All right, now this one can be a little trickier for people. What about the Holy Spirit's deity? And that's on your notes. We've got Acts chapter 5. That's where we need to go first. Uh, but how can we prove from the New Testament Scriptures that the Holy Spirit is also God? Because so far, and, and this is you know what can happen sometimes, is you'll get into a situation where you've proven a, uh, a binity or a, or a <laughs> dinity where you've just proven two. What about the third? A trinity means uh, three, of course. <clears throat> the uh, prefix there is meaning three. And so if you just talk about the Father and the Son, that must be a, what, a binity? 
or identity. <laughs> okay, we don't want to do that. We want to do, we want to do this, okay? Trinity. Trinity is what we want to do. So Acts, this is sticky. A child has handled that. Let's, uh, let's look at Acts chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 1 to 4. Would someone read those for us? Acts 5, 1 to 4. Who's got it? Go ahead, Evelyn. Mm-hmm. Very good. And kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge of bringing a portion of it and made it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why was why has Satan filled her heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart and you have not lied to men but to God? All right. According to, now listen to my question, according to verse 3, who did they lie to? According to verse 4, who did they lie to? Okay, so here's just a really simple narrative passage where you can point out, well look, it says the, the apostles told Ananias and Sapphira, you lied to the Holy Spirit and that means you lied to God. It's pretty straightforward and simple. Now, of course, there were some Old Testament passages on the Spirit's deity, but we get more in the New Testament. And here in Acts chapter 5 is one of the clearest examples where lying to the Holy Spirit is not lying to a person other than God. You haven't lied to a creature when you've lied to the Holy Spirit. But in fact, you've lied to the Creator when you've lied to the Holy Spirit. All right? Um, Hebrews 9. That's another good one. Hebrews 9. So I'll let you guys jot down some notes. I'll, I'll fill in the time a little bit uh, while you write down what I was just talking about in Acts 5. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, we have the Holy Spirit being involved in illuminating the minds of believers through the Word of God. And Paul says, who knows the mind of a man but the spirit that is within that man? And who knows, knows the mind of God but the Spirit of God? And the Spirit of God works in such a way when we read Scripture that He illumines our understanding. He teaches us. Remember, Jesus said, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to guide you into all truth. He talked about the Holy Spirit being an advocate, a teacher, a comforter. And so the Holy Spirit has this teaching ministry, and He can have that teaching ministry because He's God. Because He's God. And 2 Corinthians 3.17, oh man, a very simple phrase. I love 2 Corinthians so much, you know this. We're starting it today. It's a very exciting time. But in 2 Corinthians 3.17, listen to this phrase and see if you can find out where it talks about the Holy Spirit being God. The Lord is the Spirit. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Love that, love that verse. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So a couple of, of verses there that's just showing, again, that the Holy Spirit is God uh, in simple terms. And then we get it again in Hebrews 9. Would someone read Hebrews 9, 13 to 14 for us? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
All right, now there's so much to see in there. That is a passage that we could turn to when we talk about salvation and the gospel, when we talk about the sinfulness of man, when we talk about the Old Testament sacrificial system, all kinds of things. But what do you see in here that points to the deity of the Holy Spirit? Jesus, through the eternal Spirit, has offered his bloodshed. Okay, what, what does that say that, about the deity of the Holy Spirit? How do you get to the deity of the Spirit? Okay, if you have your notes in your binder, turn back to page 3. Page 3, where we've uh, traversed before. And look at the very bottom of page 3, the last heading on page 3. What is the attribute of God that's listed there? Eternality. Hey. What did we say about eternality? Who is eternal? Uh, Who else? Jesus. That's it. Okay, yeah, that's right. Well, the Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal. Eternality is an attribute of God. Eternality is an attribute of the Creator. No creature is eternal. By virtue of being a creature, that means you came into existence at a point in time. But the Holy Spirit is eternal. He did not come into existence at a point in time. He is the eternal spirit. This is an attribute of God applied to the Holy Spirit that is once again showing us that he is divine. Yes, Lizzie? So, can you help me understand what will the spirit, what, like, what is heaven with the spirit there? Since we are all one, and then, like, like what do we, like, is the spirit... Well, think about uh, Genesis. There's, this isn't a perfect symmetry, but there's clear symmetry in the Bible. Uh, what's called protology and eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. Protology is the study of first things. Okay? Now, there's some symmetry there. Because, in a sense, where we're headed is where we've been. God had a creation that was free from sin at one point, didn't he? A, a perfect creation. Well, a good creation. It wasn't perfect because there was still the potential to sin. And that's, why, that's where the symmetry breaks down is when we get to the new earth, that's our eternal place where we'll enjoy God forever. There will not be the potential for sin. It'll be even better than it was in Genesis 1. Okay? But when we look at Genesis 1, what's the Spirit of God doing? Is He there? He's not walking. He's hovering over the waters. So the Spirit of God's present in a creation that has no, uh, no sin in it. He's still there. Okay, And we can imagine, even though Revelation 21 and 22, when we get all this talk about the new heaven and new earth, and even in um, Isaiah 65 and 66, we don't really have much going on in there about what the Holy Spirit's going to be doing. He's not going to cease to exist. Uh, that's for sure. God doesn't cease to exist. But He'll, he'll be there. He'll be around. And uh, we... We'll enjoy Him even more than we do now. Okay? But if we look at the beginning, you say, okay, well, what does that mean? He's hovering over the waters. We don't know, but we know that that's what He's doing. And so when we think of the new earth, where we'll be, that's heaven. Well, He'll be there. Okay? All right. Father is God. Son is God. Spirit is God. Questions? Other questions before moving on to the next thing? So when we're one with God, that means the Spirit is us? 
What? <laughs> when we're one with God, I'm just trying to picture heaven with all these people. We don't become God, no. So the Spirit will never become the Spirit of God. I don't, I'm not following your, how you got there to that yeah, statement. I was thinking, like, because if we're recognized by Jesus' righteousness, the Spirit dwells within us. Mm -hmm. So then when we're in heaven, we'll have the Spirit in us, and so that's how we, like, fully... Yeah. So he, the Holy Spirit has sealed us, Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit has sealed us until the day of redemption. And so there's, there's obviously something unique about our relationship to the Holy Spirit now because we're still in a body of death. Okay? We, uh, we need Him to bear fruit through us because we haven't been glorified yet. And so for us to produce any kind of fruit, that has to happen now uh, through His power. Uh, spiritual gifts, the, the spiritual gifting that we have, those are for the church. So that's for a specific time now when we have these local churches dotted throughout the face of the earth and we've been gifted in particular ways to come together. And so there's a unique relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit now. And we're going to spend, it'll probably be four or six weeks, just talking about the Holy Spirit um, in the near future. And so we'll go through that. But when it comes to what our relationship will look like when we get to the new earth, when this era has passed, we don't have a ton of detail. But we won't become the Spirit, uh, but we will still interact with Him. He is God, after all. He will still be omnipresent, just like in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Same thing in the new earth. He'll still be omnipresent. Okay? Yeah, because I mean, for me, like, obviously we don't have all the details now, but it makes me think that, like, okay, obviously we're not going to be God, but we're going to be have more spirit, like, we're going to be glorified in the spirit more than we are right now, because we're just being sanctified. We'll talk about that more when we get to the pneumatology is what that's called when we study the Holy Spirit. All right. In the New Testament, we also see this reaffirmation that there is one God. Let's, uh, let's go to Ephesians 4. And I'll, I'll turn to James. Would someone want to read Ephesians 4, 4 through 6? Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Okay, go ahead. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right. So that word one comes up several times there, doesn't it? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, there's one God who's over all. There's... We are monotheists, aren't we? One God. Now, uh, James 2.19, this is a verse you probably know. You just don't know this is where it is, maybe. James writes to his audience, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Okay. So, is there any doubt that we are monotheists? There shouldn't be. We believe there is one God. We worship one God. The New Testament says it over and over again. Another passage you can jot down is uh, 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5 begins this way. There is only one God. <laughs> now, can you find other gods in that sentence? <laughs> no, you can't. There is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5. Well, James 2.19 says, Yeah, you do well to believe there is only one God. The demons also know that. Okay? They, they know that too. There is but one God who is over all, through all, in all. 
All right, next page. We'll talk about plurality now. So even though we have this very strong affirmation of singularity, we also get this plurality business going on. And this plurality has to do with the persons. And we'll talk about that after we finish going through this. Let's look at Matthew 3. This is a very important. Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. The baptism of Jesus shows us plurality in the Godhead. Who will read those two verses for us? Matthew 3, 16 and 17. It's only two verses. Who's got it? Thanks, Rex. <laughs> Yeah, the last two verses of uh, Matthew 3. You have. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in him, in whom I am well pleased. All right. This is a very critical passage because it doesn't just show us plurality. I'm assuming you see the plurality. Who's getting baptized? Jesus. Who descends upon him? Spirit. Who's speaking from heaven? God. Okay, very good. So you've got this plurality. But it's not just plurality, it's plurality simultaneously. Because you'll come across some Christians who will say, well, yeah, there are three. But there's the Father who revealed Himself as Father during the Old Testament. He created all things and everyone knew Him as the Father. But then He came to earth. He took on flesh and He revealed Himself as the Son and gave us His name. And His name is Jesus. And then He went back to heaven and now He interacts with us by the Spirit. <coughs> That's called modalism. And we'll talk more about that starting next week. God takes modes. Boop, boop, boop. Well, how do you explain this? Jesus is getting baptized. The Spirit's right there. The voice is speaking from heaven. It's all three happening at the same time. That's, that's pretty important, isn't it? Um, you have Jesus praying during his earthly ministry. Now, those, those people will say that's the humanity praying to the divine. No, that's not what's going on. That's the Son speaking to the Father. That language is used in Jesus' prayers. He says, Father. All right? He's the Son. When He says, glorify me with the glory I shared with you from the beginning, He's not talking to Himself. He's not talking to His humanity. And He's not talking, yeah, He's not talking to His humanity. He's not talking to... That's not how that works. We have an actual Son speaking to an actual Father. All right? That's an important distinction to make. Uh, Matthew 28, 19, we see this too. The very end of Matthew's Gospel... When Jesus commissions his disciples and he tells them to go. <laughs> Someone want to read Matthew 28, 19 for us? And I'll grab 2 Corinthians. Matthew 28, 19. Who's got it? Sorry. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right. Whose name are we baptized in? Well, the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That shows us some plurality here, doesn't it? Now, we, it doesn't say names. It says name. But it also says Father, Son, and Spirit, doesn't it? That's pretty amazing stuff. And so that's plurality. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the way that Paul finishes this letter, 
he says to these believers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All at the same time? I believe that's what Paul had in mind. All at the same time. The love of Jesus, or the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we don't take turns. We don't say, "Woo, the love of God was great today, but the fellowship of the Spirit was a bit lacking. <laughs> we have to wait till next week, and then we'll get the fellowship of the Spirit, and then the week after that, it's like a rotation. Then the week after that, we'll get the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's not it. We come together as God's church. We come together as the body of Christ, and we experience all three of these things simultaneously. And these ministries are imparted to us simultaneously by the persons. The Lord Jesus Christ is administering His grace at the same time that God is administering His love, God the Father, at the same time that the Holy Spirit is administering His fellowship. Isn't that cool? You're the benefactor of the Trinity. You will never be Trinity. You aren't Trinity. But you get to be blessed by the Trinity, the triune God. That is, that is, that is really good stuff that's there, okay? I thought of something else I was going to say, but then I got too excited about 2 Corinthians. Every verse in 2 Corinthians is just gold. <laughs> All right, and then uh, functions. We see different functions from the different persons. And what do we have in here? We've got Ephesians 1. That's good. Let's go to Ephesians 1. Just a couple of pages over if you're at 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> After 2 Corinthians, it's Galatians and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. But uh, I'll also uh, make notes here of 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 3. That's good. Now, each one of these passages shows us particular functions to the persons within the Godhead as it pertains to salvation. From 2 Corinthians 13, I was just sharing with you different functions of the persons that happen in the Christian assembly. But now, in these passages, Ephesians 1, 1 Timothy, and Titus, I'm going to show you the different functions in salvation when a person comes to know God through the gospel. And let's look, uh, well, Ephesians 1, this is just, we could spend the rest of our lives here. But uh, I'll try to make this succinct. Ephesians 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bang, right from the beginning, you've got God the Father, you've got the Lord Jesus Christ, two distinct persons. And the God and Father of Jesus... So this is talking about the Father. He has, according to verse 3, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He, the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, the Father's will, to the praise of of the glory of His grace, the Father's grace, which He, the Father, freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Well, now we're talking about the Son. Because Jesus Christ came and shed His blood. The Father didn't do that. The Word did, the Son. We have the forgiveness of sins, of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, the Son, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He had purposed in Him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Okay, now drop down to verse 13. In Him, you see this language all the time in Paul's writings, in Him 
You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You weren't sealed by the Father. You weren't sealed by the Son. You were sealed by the Spirit. And we find out more. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So in your salvation, in your coming to faith in Christ, that happened because the Father chose you and predestined you according to the kind intention of his will before creation. That's number one, Father's work. It happened because the Son, the Word, He took on flesh and He bled and died for your sins. He suffered, bled, and died and rose again in your place for your sins. And the Holy Spirit came and He affected you. We're going to see uh, some language here in Titus 3. He regenerated you. He caused you to be born again to a living hope. And He sealed you until the day of redemption. After you believed, He sealed you. And you're secure. Isn't that amazing? Your salvation is nothing without the Trinity. Without the triune God, you don't have salvation. Praise God, you've got all three persons doing their work, their distinct functions, to bring you to faith. That's pretty cool stuff. Now, 1 Timothy 2, I already shared that one with you uh, just by memory. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is only one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So he is our mediator between the Father and us. That's what's going on here with the different functions. There is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So who is the one that, that unites us to God? Well, it's God himself. Jesus Christ, the God who became man, the God-man. There is only one mediator. The Father isn't the mediator. The Son is the mediator. And what can happen, and I think I may have just done it a, a second ago, what can sometimes happen is we can picture this as, well, we are alienated from the Father, and so the Son came to bring us to the Father. Now, even though that's true, we are not only alienated from the Father in our sin, but in our sin we're also alienated from the Son and the Spirit. Because they are just as holy and authoritative and sovereign as, as the Father, the Son and the Spirit are. And so we, it's more right for us to say that we are alienated from the triune God. And the person, the Son, the person of the Son of God came and He serves as our mediator because He took on flesh, Jesus Christ, and He now brings us close to God. Had you sinned against Jesus too, not just the Father, but had you sinned against the Son? Yeah, you had. And the Spirit. And yet, the person of the Son, He takes on flesh and He brings us back to God. And that's why Christmas is so great. Because we are recognizing He came to rescue us, to ransom us. And then Titus 3, 4 through 8. And after this, I'll pause for some questions. Titus 3, 4 to 8. Just before the book of Hebrews there, you've got the little book of Philemon. And then you've got Titus. Now again, look for Father, Son, and Spirit here. In this passage, Titus 3, 4 through 8. Who's got it? Sebastian. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He said us, not because of what's done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regenerated 
regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom we pour out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become kings according to the hope of eternal life. The same is trustworthy, and I want you to receive some of these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to God's works. Okay, um, where do you see Father, Son, Spirit there in verses 4 to 8? Okay, so we're definitely talking about God's mercy. And, and this, this is one of those things that just shows the how there is both singularity and plurality. Because you look at this and you say, well, there are distinct persons here. You've got Jesus, you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got the Father. But when it says just He did this, you don't know which one it's talking about in particular, right? That's because they are one God. And sometimes it's really difficult when you just say, God saved us. That could be talking about the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. But we, but we can't just say, well, there is no Father, Son, and Spirit. There is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so that just shows there's singularity and plurality going on. But what do you see specifically that we can say, this is the Father, this is the Son, or this is the Spirit? In this passage, yep. What's Jesus doing? What's the Holy Spirit doing? What's the Father doing? doesn't have to be in any particular order. Anytime you, any moment you notice something, just shout it out. Very good. Very good. Verse 5. There's a washing of regeneration and renewal, not by the Father, not by the Son. This regeneration comes by the Holy Spirit. Okay. What else? What else do we see? Okay. We see Jesus Christ named specifically in verse 6. And Jesus Christ is the means by which the Holy Spirit is poured out. You see that in verse 6? Whom He poured out. Now who's doing the pouring? Probably God the Father's in view here, right? The Father is pouring out the Holy Spirit richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You get all three in one verse there. Pretty amazing. Okay, what else are you seeing? Okay, good. We are justified. Now that's most likely talking about the Father, because we're declared righteous through the sacrifice of Christ. That's what justified means. We are declared innocent or declared righteous in the sight of God. So it's likely uh, that the Father's being spoken of there, and probably too at the beginning of verse 4. I don't know. That's probably Trinitarian. But when the kindness of our Trinitarian God and Savior and His Trinitarian love for mankind appeared, that's almost how I'd preach that, I think. <laughs> he saved us. Okay? And then when we think about salvation, you take Ephesians 1 into account, and you take 1 Timothy 2 and so many other passages. You take all these into account, and he's like, okay, you've got Father, Son, and Spirit all doing different things here with one purpose, bringing the sinner into a justified state. To be justified by His grace, verse 7, to become heirs of eternal life. All right? Pretty amazing stuff. The doctrine of the Trinity as we know it was recognized over time 
by the early church as they studied Scripture and fought heresy. So um, this is a really important point. I'm going to make two more important points in this uh, class in the next five minutes, then we'll stop. We're not going to finish this lesson today. So uh, I want to clarify something here. The doctrine of the Trinity, as we know it, it was recognized over time by the early church as they studied Scripture and fought heresy. It's a doctrine we're talking about. We're not talking about the verses themselves. We're talking about a doctrine. Because the Trinity takes a bunch of verses that have to come together. Now there are verses like we just looked at where you see Father, Son, and Spirit all in the same verse. But that doesn't get you to the full doctrine of the Trinity. You have to start taking all these passages together in Scripture and say, what's the summary of what Scripture is teaching about the nature of God? Well, in the early church, this doctrine was recognized over time. It wasn't instant. Because people didn't even get their, their Bibles all bound together in one instantly. It slowly developed over time. The people's Bibles did. And so that just having the full Bible took time. So developing doctrines also took time. And as they accumulated Scripture, studying Scripture takes time. Is there anything more important than studying Scripture? Is there any field of study that's more important than God Himself, theology, the study of God? Well, no. And so you want to be very careful. You have to think about the words you use. And it takes time. And then as different false teachings pop up, before you can say they're false, you have to study Scripture know what's right. <laughs> so as more and more groups started popping up and saying, well, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. Well, they've got to go back to Scripture and they've got to work on things. They've got to articulate the doctrine. So I hope that what you've seen this morning and from last week is that Scripture gives us this doctrine. You, these three words I'm going to come back to, singularity, plurality, equality, you have that going on in the Godhead. Now, the articulation of it in our contemporary language, that just takes some time to develop in a precise way. And so this is from a statement from the early church as they articulated this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. See the particular language that has to be used here? Being of one substance with the Father. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life. The Council of Constantinople. Now we have other Trinitarian statements from before this time. It's not like, uh, what, 300 years after Paul died or whatever, then we finally got the doctrine of the Trinity. That's not how that worked. But as far as these councils that came together to develop statements to fight heresy, this is one that came together that's pretty good. It's pretty, pretty comprehensive on the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that happened in 381. Okay. Now one more thing I want to talk about is to finish on these terms. Singularity, plurality, and equality. I don't have this in your notes. You may want to jot this down on the blank sheet that's on your left there. But singularity, when we refer to singularity, we say, of course, there is only one God. So this is referring to the substance or the essence of God. And we'll return to this next week. The substance or essence of God. That's what singularity makes reference to. When we say there is one God, or when we say that God is singular, we don't have reference to persons in that statement. 
There is not one person of God. There are three persons of God. So this is in reference to substance and essence. Plurality, God has revealed himself in Trinity. This has to do with persons. You got to get this right. And it can seem daunting, but you can do it. You're smart people. You got jobs and you read books and stuff. You're smart. Plurality has to do with, I just wrote plurality. See, I'm not smart. You're smart. You could have uh, told me that. Why'd you just write plurality again? (laughs) Persons. Persons. So when we say that there's plurality in God, we aren't referencing the substance. Because if we were referencing the substance, that would leave us with multiple gods. We don't believe in multiple gods. We believe there is singularity in the substance or essence of God. There is but one God. Yet when it comes to the persons of God, there are three. Father, Son, Spirit. And then equality, all three persons are revealed as God individually. Individually. So, I'll just put it this way. Each is 100% God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And we'll talk about some heresies starting next week too. But uh, one of the heresies that will sometimes get taught, and it, uh, most of the time it's accidental. Most of the time it's Christians who just want to use something to try to make it easier to understand. Because you're, you're sitting here this morning saying, oh, okay, that's pretty, can I really get this? And you can, okay? But what we want to do is jump to something that we know. Let's take something from creation and compare God to that so we can understand God better. But remember that big chasm? Creator and creature? <laughs> to whom will you liken God? All right? So some people will teach, well, God is like a three-leaf clover. Father, Son, and Spirit, you got the three-leaf clover there going on. Which sounds pretty good when you first hear it. Except, if you take away one of those leaves and you hold it in your hand, is that a three-leaf clover? You've lost equality. And the other two that are still attached to the stem over there, is that a trinity anymore? No. So you have to be very careful about illustrations. And the best way that you can do that is to start learning this. This is about like the most basic way that I can make it with words. Singularity in substance and essence. Plurality in persons. And there's equality. Each one is God. Okay? Start there. And then don't deviate from that. Okay? Very good. One in essence, three in persons. That's where we'll pick up next week. Okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are higher than us, you are above us, you are greater than us in every way. And Lord, we ask that today as we continue worshiping you, that we would have our minds affected by your word, that we would grow in our understanding, that we would grow in our faith and grow in our love. God, help us to represent you well today and to be blessed by this fellowship and to be a blessing in this fellowship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.